This is Smart Women, Smart Power, a podcast that features conversations with some of the world's most powerful women. You know, as a nation, we have to realize that this is a crisis, that it is impacting all areas of our lives. It is impacting all of our families and our communities. But we also have to focus in on the fact that the children are our future. We feature women who are breaking barriers and shaping the future of foreign policy, national security, international business and development. I'm Beverly Kirk, the director of the Smart Women, Smart Power Initiative at the Center for Strategic and International Studies in Washington. The COVID-19 pandemic has dominated public attention and healthcare resources over the last six months. But the opioid crisis gripping the nation remains a major problem, and in some areas, it's getting worse. Smart Women, Smart Power moderator and CSIS senior associate Nina Easton sat down for a conversation on how West Virginia is coping with the opioid epidemic and COVID. She spoke with the First Lady of West Virginia, Kathy Justice, Elaine Wynn, board chairman of Communities in Schools, and Michelle Blatt, deputy state superintendent of schools for West Virginia. They discussed the importance of education in combating the opioid crisis and how West Virginia is supporting residents during the pandemic. This conversation is sponsored by City. Let's open up with our terrific panel this afternoon. Uh, you know, it's interesting because it seems like COVID uh, has taken all the oxygen out of the room of everything we talk about, particularly everything having to do with health. But in fact, the opioid crisis is still happening. Mrs. Justice, can you please give us an overview of what is going on in West Virginia? And I think Candy suggested we things have even gotten worse on the opioid front. Tell us what's going on. Oh, Nina, hello. Thank you for having us today. Uh, thank you, Smart Women, Smart Power, for letting us be here and talk with you all today. Uh, West Virginia, as any state across the whole country, is having problems. It's really impacted every part of our state and continues to do this. Um, although the governor has implemented um, two big things, it's called Jobs and Hope. It's a, uh, where people can go as a residence. There are four residents throughout the state. They can go, they're provided transportation to, to find a job, to go to a job, train for a special thing, and really just lets them uh, become a productive person back into society. So we have that. And then we have another thing, it's called Office in Drug uh, Paneling. And this is where all the data is gathered and we can deal with our problems more efficient in that way. So we have a couple of things going on. The crisis uh, probably is not, um, well, it's still bad, but not as bad. It seems like the, the opioid has been taking over by maybe heroin, which is a cheaper drug, which is countrywide. So that's where we are now. We're fighting this. We have all kinds of encouraging facts. The uh, percentage from uh, 16 and 17 went down 11 percent, or 17 and 18, 11 percent, and 18 to 19, 5 percent. So we are making headways on this, and we're just trying, just like everyone is, and we're going to be successful doing this. So, Elaine, let's bring you into the conversation. You have a program, Communities and Schools. Tell us about the program and tell us um, kind of in connection with that, what you see in schools when there is this addiction crisis? 
I will, but first I'd like to say greetings to First Lady and my partner in West Virginia. Delighted and honored to be here to join all of you. Communities and Schools has taken 40 years to be an overnight sensation. And the core business of what we do is get involved in the lives of young people who have barriers that prevent them from succeeding academically that are external to school. And so our normal work is sort of managing and being a triage provider. We acknowledge that there are many problems that young people have that have to be dealt with before they're ready to learn. We also understand that communities have a myriad of services and nonprofit agencies that can be directed to solving a lot of these issues. So we coordinate this into what we call integrated student supports or wraparound services. But our secret sauce is that we put real life caring adults in schools to facilitate and coordinate the delivery of these services. Now, things were somewhat difficult before this pandemic, and especially with regard to opioid use, we understand that people take drugs to relieve pain, but they're relieving pain that may not be physical. It is social and emotional. And such is the case that it translates and transmits down to the entire family. So children, as part of the rest of what they have to deal with, whether it's poverty or health issues, observe families undergoing this terrible additional burden, and they're impacted. CIS right now is in 25 states across America and the District of Columbia, and we are now properly positioned to assist at this period of time because we're used to dealing with crises. And we have repositioned all of our people who are well-trained, either social workers or teachers or people that assist in addressing each ones of these issues to deal with the families and the children, but very tightly in connection with the academic environment so that we are trusted. We are not an add-on, we are an included piece and we treat the children holistically. We know the pandemic is accelerating this opioid use, which we were starting to get a handle on. It's another sad reality to acknowledge that where progress has been made, we're now at an inflection point where new issues are developing. But we are prepared and dedicated. And with the invitation of Mrs. Justice, we did a very rapid unroll, uh, unrolling of programs a couple of years ago where she gave us the go, she and her husband, to include all of the people in that state in an effort to come into those schools and assist them. And we're now doubling down with a new program in conjunction with Sesame Street that has a whole new specific curriculum aimed at things just like this. Yes, Sesame Street's doing so many exciting things around the world now. Um, tell us just a little bit more about what that program is there. Well, in addition to what we normally do, which is having our facilitators in various schools, the Sesame Street program brings a special curriculum that's been dedicated to train all of the people that are interacting with the children, especially on social, social and emotional learning and those kinds of issues. So another thing that we do very carefully is measure results. 
So we have control groups where we'll have a certain group of schools, and this is dedicated to pre-K through eight years old, I believe. Uh, we will do the Sesame Street curriculum at a group of schools. We have our CIS program at another group of schools. And at the end of the period, we're going to measure the results to see if the impact of the Sesame Street curriculum has made a difference. Now, along with that goes an additional amount of money directed at those Sesame Street schools. And very often that can make the difference as well in staffing and supplies and bringing things that are so necessary to a school that may not have all the funding for it. And Michelle, let's bring you into the conversation as well. What, uh, tell us what is going on at the school level in terms of the addiction crisis, what you're seeing. And also, um, I, I don't know if, you're, if schools are remote there, but if they are, how does this impact? How does that impact being able to monitor those children? Yes, thank you, Nina. Uh, we do have a lot of our schools back in session in-person instruction. Uh, we actually started on Tuesday. Uh, 49 of our 55 counties were able to open, and it was the first time that many of our teachers, well, all of our teachers had seen the students since we closed March 13th. So the impact that we are seeing in the schools and that what we have struggled with throughout the summer is the fact that many of these students are in homes of drug-addicted parents. Uh, we have seen an increase in um, overdose deaths and hospital visits, as many states across the country have, because of the abuse that these students have encountered during this time. So the impact that has on our schools is how do we support our staff, our communities and schools coordinators to make sure they have the resources that they need to address, as Elaine has stated, those social and emotional behaviors that the students are gonna bring based on the trauma that they've experienced uh, over the past five to six months. And Mrs. Justice, talk about the work that you've done, volunteering, taking care of newborns, that sort of personal connection you've made in helping victims of the crisis. Well, Nina, we visited a local hospital and uh, we went to the neonatal unit and uh, there we saw uh, people that were grandparents in the uh, room with the children and they were rocking them, having all kinds of personal contact with them, just letting them know that they were loved and uh, babies like have regular, irregular movements of muscles. I'll say they're crying and say they're very, very, it's difficult and very sad to see them. Uh, but with the grandparents support and people that are retired to come to the hospital and donate their time to do this is wonderful, very much appreciated, and that's something we could do, and it wouldn't be anything at all, and we just need to be involved as much as we can doing this. And how important is education to combating the drug crisis? Well, in my opinion, education is the key to everything. We have to educate these children at a younger age, and as they grow up, that they'll know just what responsibility that they have. Uh, we see children that come from homes that um, are abusive homes, that are drug homes, and uh, uh, the children need to know that there's a different way. We need to encourage these children 
to uh, be as good as they can do, give them all the encouragement and support that they can be anything that they want in life. So that's, they're kind of a little bit downbeaten and feel like that they may cannot do very much or do what their friends are doing. But encouragement is a great thing. Education, encouragement, and knowing that there's one, that one person who's a caring adult that cares for them and will be there with them all the time. And Elaine, when you look across the country, you're able to have this broad vision, 25 states in the District of Columbia. What have we learned about the opioid crisis and, you know, the first lady mentioned heroin now. What have we learned about these drug crises and how to best help children uh, going through this? Well, I know that the topic today is the opioid crisis, but I think it really is just part of a menu of things that all come into play. We know that in order for children to feel safe Physiologically and psychologically, they have to be connected. They have to be engaged. And so making sure that they are engaged in something is critical. Obviously, the thing that they should be most engaged with is their school. And so during these periods, especially now, and I, I happen to also be president of the State Board of Education in Nevada. And so the biggest challenge across the country at the moment is this issue of connectivity. Things are exacerbated when the children are disconnected physically from their schools, which is occurring in so much of the country, because it is at the school site that they are cared for by those people who may be the only people they see during the day that reach out to them and, as Mrs. Justice explained, exhibit a, a caring and loving and empathetic relationship. We know that that's what children need to thrive. And so as we go across the country, the one thing that concerned us was this issue of virtual learning and how many children are not connected to the internet and do not have devices. And that is really a gateway into their homes for us. If they can't be at school, at least teachers can see these children on the screen. And they can see, just like I can see your background today and your books, your lovely environment, they can get a, a sense of what's going on in that child's atmosphere by what they're seeing behind them, how the children are on the screen. And very often that is the key to triggering an outreach to help them deal with perhaps a drug crisis at home or the myriad of other things that we've touched upon. So I would say that for the moment, the emergency that I see with CIS is making sure that we are connecting with our children because we are the only way to see into their world when they are prevented from being at a school site. And more and more, there will be waves of that. We're seeing kids who have been going to school in reality or in a hybrid mix have outbursts of the pandemic all of a sudden, the schools are shut down, the kids are sent back home, and there they are at risk because of those environmental issues. And, you know, um, Elaine, I, I've heard it said by people in the domestic abuse um, prevention area that, you know, teachers are often the first line of defense. They're actually the ones who spot trouble. And I'm sure that's the case in drug addiction as well. So it's not it's not even the, the dis, it's the disconnect, yes, the internet disconnect, but also just that physical disconnect. You've lost the opportunity to see when there's something 
physically wrong and something going on in a child's life that needs to be addressed. Exactly. It's the threshold. It's a safety threshold. We understand if the kids need to be fed. We understand if they need glasses or dental care. We also understand if there's any kind of sense of abuse going on with them or their families. And First Lady Justice, how does, um, what have you learned about the cycle of abuse and through the opioid addiction, the cycle of abuse and how to end that sort of generational abuse? Education and caring about the, the children themselves, their homes. So many times the abuse goes generation after generation. The children see this behavior at home and then they continue uh, repeating it year after year. Uh, one really nice incident that we saw was at uh, one of our local high schools. We had a young lady there that her mother was addicted to drugs and every day she, her biggest fear was to open her mother's bedroom door and find her dead. And she was very blunt with us and told us all this. At the same time, she was caring for two younger siblings, which was an incredible task in itself. Plus, she was working two part-time jobs, and that plus going to school. Well, she graduated. She was the most inspiring young lady that had helped through the communities and schools. And this was a person that came out, came out of this situation, is going to excel in life. And so this is what we want to see, and we just want to keep up with these children, know that people care about them, and just let them know that we're there, and we will be there for them to help them. Great. And I want to pause here. I neglected to mention at the start of our session that there is a way to submit questions for our audience. Just go to the CSIS event page, and there's an option there to submit your questions. So go ahead and please submit any questions you'd like to ask. We want this to be very interactive. Um, Michelle, I just wanted to turn to you and see what you would add to the, the First Lady's comments. As we started looking through the, the pandemic and thinking about the experiences that our students were not going to be able to experience with schools closing, you know, we had a lot of concerns. We knew there were a lot of critical needs, feeding our students, the learning loss, the different protocols that would need to be put in place to get them back in school. But throughout this whole time, our focus has been on making sure that our child had a connection to the school, the social and emotional needs were met of the, ch of the child, and we talk about the importance of just the relationships. So when we think about our communities and schools program and the coordinators, those schools had a, a head start on how to take, kid, take care of students through the remote learning. Um, they knew the kids that were at risk. They knew the needs they have. We have so many wonderful stories of them throughout the summer even, providing meals to the homes, paying electrical bills. I mean, it's just amazing the work that has gone on through our school districts to meet the needs of these students while they have been at home. So Michelle, what's your greatest concern and your greatest worry right now um, with children at home? Our greatest concern is our being cared for. While we did get many of our counties back in school, parents do have the option for virtual school and remote learning. Uh, we will be providing meals, breakfast and lunch daily or on a weekly basis to those students at home. Uh, we will be sending out social workers, um, our communities and schools coordinators, when we're not able to make contact with them, um, as Mrs. Wynn mentioned, when we're not able to see those backgrounds and look at them remotely or have a conversation with them. 
So that has been our biggest concern is that our children are taken care of. And many of them do have the internet, lack of internet access, lack of devices. But even more than that, those that do, not everyone has a parent that's available to sit with them at home and walk them through those assignments and help them log on and access. So there's so many inequities in our education system across the United States when you start thinking about the internet access and then that most of us have two, most children have two working parents and there's not someone there to assist them. So as we get transition out of this pandemic, hopefully in the near future, there's gonna be a lot more of educational gaps and inequities that we're going to see coming into the classroom that we're going to have to be prepared for. So speaking of that, we have a question from the audience and I'll raise this first with the first lady and then um, to Elaine. Each of you come from a middle-class to affluent background. How are you incorporating diversity of thought and experience into what you do to be inclusive of those from other backgrounds? Mrs. Justice, you wanna tackle that one first? Uh, yes, well, we have to look at the children as uh, someone who cares. We look at them and we don't want people uh, involved in the program unless they do care. So we, they have a genuine caring about them. We first want to meet everyone has basic needs, whether it be food, shelter, clothing. So those have to be met before we ever do anything else. We always just put yourself in that child's situation and know what they're thinking and let them talk to you because children if they know that you like them they know right off the first thing if you like them or don't like them so these children we just want them to feel like that we love them that they can come to us with any problems we're going to help them with this and so that's the way we want them to be successful just keep them give them all the encouragement that they can have to live a great normal life elaine well, this question is almost like a lob, and uh, I'll, I'll explain why. Our wonderful founder, Bill Milliken, who's responsible for the CIS program years ago, understood this as an equity and justice movement and recognized that the one thing that keeps our, our country divided is unequal access to so much, but particularly to education. So CIS's main focus all along has been directed and targeted to those children who have been unfairly uh, removed from what so many other children have had access to. Diversity is not an add-on for us. It is foundational to our work. It's reflected in our national board. It's reflected in all of the messaging that we convey to our affiliates. It is reflected in our workforce and particularly reflected in our efforts. And if I could just refer back to this connectivity piece. In Nevada, we, we immediately recognized that those children who would be deprived of education if they were not connected, most likely would be children of color or families in poverty. We engaged in a program immediately to connect all of our children. We are almost at 98% connectivity throughout the state of Nevada. And that means we are going after every child like a needle in a haystack, finding those kids. If they are not connected to the internet, we are connecting them free of charge for a year. If they do not have a device, they're being provided with devices that were paid for 
care dollars and other funding. But we made a point of saying every single child, particularly those of color who have been disadvantaged for all of these years, must be promoted during this pandemic. That is the message of CIS, and it will exist in West Virginia as well, because it's part of our DNA. And Mrs. Justice, you want to add to that about what's happening in West Virginia on that front? Yes, as you know, West Virginia is a very mountainous state, so we have uh, internet connections that aren't the best. Uh, a lot of the children don't have inter internet or are accessible to this. So what we've done in the interject right there, what percent of students don't have an internet connection in West in the state, would you say? Okay. Michelle. About 30% of the children don't have internet. But this is a great thing. We are increasing broadband throughout the state with lots of funding that we have. We've increased to a thousand different hookups that children could go to with their families or friends or whatever and get online to do this. So we're making this very accessible for children, hoping that they'll do this and know that they don't have an excuse not to do their homework and just an option that's going to increase everything. This program is called Kids Connect and we're connecting every person that we can to the internet and this has been really successful so far although it's just in the first week of school so just to understand that so these are internet connections where the students not in the home it's someplace the children go with their family correct yes correct these are called hot spots and they're um, right at we're very very close to installing a thousand of these across the state right yeah, Mrs. Justice does have a unique problem because of the geographical um, boundaries there and it being a mountainous place as opposed to areas that are more urban. But in Nevada, we have rural communities as well that are challenged. And the ideal situation, of course, would be for the children to be able to hook up in their homes and not have to be transported yet again to another location where they're hooked up and sharing devices. So, uh, but if you, you can imagine 30% of, of the children that are disconnected translates to 30% potentially dropping out of school. Yeah. And that is why the first lady is motivated as are all of us in education to quickly connect our kids before they become disenchanted, disengaged and give up not necessarily in the younger ages, but at, at the older ones, and especially those that are babysitting their brothers and sisters or having to get jobs now, you know, the real assignment is to keep our teenagers reconnected and engaged in school. They have no sports, they have no after-school programs. You know, how do we appeal to them to stay in school? And also learn the lessons about the drug programs that are prevalent in West Virginia. Do our, our, let me ask you a couple questions, Elaine. First, 30% seems extraordinarily high. Do you happen to know in Nevada what, um, what percent of kids don't have access to the internet? Yeah, right? yes, indeed. As I mentioned to you, we're at the 98% mark of connectivity. We are, we are drilling down on about 30,000 kids, and that's mainly in the Clark County School District, which okay. is the fifth largest one in the country. But we have been working on this since it became of concern to us in, at the end of the, uh, the early summer. 
and we bought providers together. We bought Cox, we bought T-Mobile. We used all of our corporate influence to get them to, to move quickly. We advanced delivery of our devices. We have task force phone meetings three times a week where we have dashboards that measure all of the school districts weigh in and tell us what the enrollment is, how many families have been reached out, how many devices have been sent, how many connectivities occur. I mean, we are vigilant and they know we mean business. There will be no child disconnected in Nevada and look for our press release. I'm, I don't mean to hog the space for Nevada. No, I think this, this is, is a, but it is the, it is the, the connectivity piece that is, is what I think is the critical next step in keeping our kids safe and healthy and drug free. Yeah, and Michelle, it seems like the COVID, the pandemic has just accelerated that need. There's been a lot of talk over the years about uh, Americans who aren't connected and children who aren't connected, but this has really sped up the urgency of it. And it also plays into these issues of addiction and, and other social problems when people are disconnected. Um, do, do you sense a heightened urgency around that? Definitely. We started working with a task force with our governor's office of technology, with our department of education, and then with our higher education policy council immediately when the pandemic hit and we dismissed school on March 13th. So we've partnered with many of the same, the T-Mobile, um, AT&T and many of those things have partnered with us. Uh, we have counties that have also on their, with their CARES money, been able to get local businesses to contribute and to join in with them. And one particular county that's in our Eastern Panhandle is actually having six new towers put up so that connectivity can get into the homes. Um, I would say that thinking about um, this technology is something that we've done uh, We've worked on for years here in West Virginia because as the first lady said, we are a mountainous area and it makes it a little difficult, but there has been a new focus and we are pleased that a lot of players have come to the table to assist us with this. Um, and I mentioned our Higher Education Policy Commission because our college students and even some of our professors did not have the access that they needed to provide instruction remotely. And so the access points that we're putting up around the state will also be available to all of our college students as well. And then we'll start from those determining how far those reach out into the communities and where the fiber actually needs run to reach each of those individual houses. Well, Michelle, so what percent of college students don't have access? I believe our chancellor um, of higher education had said they were, they were reaching closer to 40% that they learned when they uh, started sending because we closed the dorms initially yeah. uh, to, to fight the pandemic and so it was just a surprise I think to that our universities and colleges um, also were seeing the same issues that we were seeing in the rural parts of the state. That's tough. Um, you know Elaine you mentioned teenagers and again going back to addiction issues this becomes I mean this is a very difficult I'm a mother I mean uh, you know a lot of us are watching our kids go through this. Um, and I, I do worry about teenagers. I worry about younger kids too, but teenagers um, being so isolated and uh, kind of the potential depression, potential addiction. Uh, what are you, do you have a sense of what's going on uh, through CSI, CIS? 
Well, we're, we're going to have our board meeting in a town hall next week. I wish we could have had it the week prior so I could be more responsive when all of our affiliates will be checking in and reporting back to us on what they're seeing in the field. But I think just anecdotally, we all know what's going on by understanding the experiences that we're seeing in the paper and our own local school districts. Uh, where, where we have educators who are enlightened and committed and dedicated, which I'd have to say is the majority of the case. We're really totally dependent on our teachers and our principals to get creative in their connectivity with the kids. They all have been working over the summer getting trained and new platforms for this kind of teaching and learning. They're getting creative. They're doing wonderful, fun things. And my message, and I hope that it, it does get conveyed, is we all need to lighten up a bit on this because we are all feeling so compelled to just grinch down here and get back to basics and make sure these kids are learning. There are a lot of life's lessons to be learned that are not connected to ABC and math. One of them is resiliency. One of them is keeping positive attitudes, you know, which goes to the social emotional learning that we focus on that is so critical. It's making kids resilient in tough times. These are lessons that are just as valuable and vital as the academic normal core curriculum. And so I know that CIS is aware of it because it's part of our DNA. And so I'm expecting you to get a lot of good uh, results uh, next week, but I have been getting bits and pieces that are, that are encouraging while at the same time highlighting the challenges. Yeah, I think, it, I think you are so, I'm so glad you said that. I think that's so right, that um, it does teach resiliency, it teaches flexibility. We also start to realize too, and I see this as a parent, that kids need physical whether it's exercise, but physical movement and, um, you know, the decline of sports as much as they're trying to have some sports um, go on. It's, that's a real, um, that's a real hard issue for kids. For sure. For sure it is. And I know that a lot of the schools are even trying if they are closed and only uh, are virtual, the coaches are having permission to bring kids in to do drills at a distance uh, they're, they're attempting, uh, I've even seen kids be given the exercises to do at home online with a coach right there in the room. I mean, we've seen the musical programming that goes on with our fabulous music teachers. And, um, you know, this is when it all comes back to parents as well, which is the other burden put on parents that we've relinquished so much of this oversight to our schools that now when it's back in our possession to do, we've got to help get our kids outside safely, even if it means we got to put on our, our shoes and go out there with them. Yeah. Yeah. And Mrs. Justice, uh, turning back to the uh, pandemic, uh, um, how have people been able to get treatment for, excuse me, I was actually saying, turning, turning the situation back to the, um, the, the opioid crisis, how are uh, people helped able to get help uh, during the pandemic? Has that been an, an obstacle? 
as any state, I'm sure, is enduring what we are. Um, there's, you know, the isolation, the one-on-one the one -on -one, uh, connection that these people have. They just don't have that. A lot of the uh, uh, centers are closed or very small staffed. And so um, there is a huge, huge uh, maybe box side of these people that are really having a hard time at home. And uh, we just really need to try to keep encouraging them and uh, hope that the epidemic, uh, the drug epidemic, uh, Gets, doesn't get worse with the pandemic that we're having now. But it is, but since the hospitals have opened up and uh, said so there's more and more care for these people and you just need to reach out to them or them reach out to you and uh, try to get them the care and uh, stability that they need. And where do you see the future of the opioid epidemic going and, and how is it altered by the current conditions of the nation and the world? Well, again, I think education is great. We need a lot of funding, although we are implementing a lot of centers uh, in our state, in our country. We need more and more. We need to try to uh, get these people to have be productive people, to get them to have jobs, to go to a technical school, to uh, get them somewhere in life that is meaningful for them, and they feel like they have a fulfillment of of living a great life. So this is our end result because if they can go to colleges, trade schools, not everyone's equipped to go to college or should they, but all the trade schools are great and that uh, there is a niche for everyone. We just need to find them, make them feel good about themselves and uh, a good productive citizen to our country and themselves. Great. So we have an um, audience question about the Sesame Street program, which I'd like to take to both first Michelle and then to Elaine. Um, is the Sesame Street program evidence-based and how is critical thinking as well as SEI incorporated into the plan? So we are at West Virginia is actually a pilot for the Sesame Street project. Uh, we are starting uh, thanks to National Communities and Schools Office. So it is evidence-based. Uh, we will be doing it with uh, a set number of schools and then seeing the response and the, and the growth in those students on a series of things as we move through as compared to the multiple other programs. Of course, you know, all of our school systems have lots of programs in school uh, to combat the, the drug epidemic and to, to teach children how to handle situations they run into. Um, but the Sesame Street is, is new for all of us. And we're excited in West Virginia that we get to, to pilot that, especially with what we've been going through over the past several months. And before I turn to Elaine on that very same topic, let me just follow up and ask you how successful is the communities and school program in the state of West Virginia? How's that working? It has been extremely successful. We've had 100% uh, graduation rates of our students that have been served um, in our high schools. We're seeing uh, increased attendance. Uh, decreased discipline referrals and just an overall culture of, of change in those schools that the supports there for the students and they know it. It was interesting to talk with one of our site coordinators when she shared the information that we had experienced um, kids not wanting to come into her classroom, not wanting to share information with her and she knew that they needed support. And the coordinator just kept reaching out, kept building these resources in that classroom. And now she had to move to a larger space because the students want to be in that class, you know, in that area. They want to share information with her. And we're just so excited that, you know, we've been able to grow it from three pilot schools 
and three pilot counties into 25 counties. And they have not stopped working throughout the summer. We've done virtual training with our new counties and everyone is on board and hearing the success of those initial three counties and want to expand and have it in their own county. Great. Elaine Sesame Street, you wanna talk about that a little bit more? I, I do, but before I get into that, I never cease to be touched emotionally when I hear someone say 100% graduation rate. You know, yeah. I mean, it is, it is worthy of celebrating and, and this is the first time hearing it. So I'm, I'm it, this is a good I, meeting I this morning. Up. I see you choking up, Elaine, with I, good I, reason. I am, I am. Um, so um, you may not know, but Sherry Weston, the wonderful person connected with Sesame Street Workshop is on the National Board of CIS. And it was through her encouragement that she said, we want to help uh, escalate and, and do the work in West Virginia with our program. So at her urging and of course the joint funding, we introduced this program. It is in its infancy now. so we don't have anything to report because it's just rolling out. But everything CIS does is evidence-based. We track our data very, very carefully because we've always believed that the main beauty of what we do is the business approach, that we leverage so many other institutions in delivering service that we get, truly get a bang for the buck. But we need to, we need to prove that. And so we have return on investment, so to speak, at the end of all of our programs. So we are very anxiously anticipating the results of this. And we're sure every time you inject an additional ounce of energy, of caring, of uh, research-based approaches to children, you usually wind up with good results. It's so great to hear. Um, I know Sherry Weston, by the way, has taken Sesame Street into refugee camps in the Middle East, and it's, it, it, that has had an extraordinary impact with distressed populations of children there. So it's truly a global effort. It's uh, really terrific. Um, and it is, Nina, it is based on the feedback from that program, which was dealing with social emotional issues, which you don't think about with regard to refugee children. It's that feedback from that program that has been directing her efforts, you know, at, to, to local situations. Oh, that's great. That's really important. Um, a program, by the way, that was started by LBJ, uh, in addition to another a number of impactful programs that have still shaping our country today. Um, let me go back to drug addiction as we kind of wind down here. And Going back to the First Lady, parents will not get help for their substance abuse disorder if they're afraid. What are some of the things that are being done to help fight the stigma of addiction? And let, let me start with you, Mrs. Justice. Well, relationships are huge. So people that um, teachers, principals, uh, people go to the homes and make really uh, a one-on-one -on -one rapport with the parents so that they'll feel comfortable that they will talk to them because they're very some of them are just afraid they just don't know they won't get help but you have to have that rapport with them and kind of guide them and just kind of it's a very very tricky thing but uh, with lots of home visits from the schools themselves and from the um, 
uh, site uh, coordinators at the schools. You can get a lot done, but it's the one-on-one -on -one commitment from the school to the parents and the family that gets the most accomplished. And Michelle, let's go to you before going to Elaine on that same question. Yeah, I think part of it is putting the information out there. We know that the drug epidemic can impact anyone. It's, there's probably very few families across the United States that have not been impacted by it. I will say that the Jobs um, and Hope program that our First Lady spoke about has been very successful because we've taken individuals, provided them a trade, provided them the counseling and the support they need, and then helped them find a job. And there's the follow-up that's there as well to make sure that they stay on track and that they are successful. Because we had seen a lot of the stigma was around these individuals would go through programs and go through treatment and then they would get out and have nowhere to go or no job to rely on. And so putting this program in place, uh, we've impacted many, many lives and this is just the second year of this program. Um, and I think that's gonna have a huge impact on our children then in our schools because you know, these are the parents of our children or people that will soon be parents to children that enter our schools. And Elaine, again, yeah. you um, would love to hear your perspectives, um, especially from the CIS point of view when you're dealing with, with sure. kids and entire families. So I would take a little bit of a different tack. If there's any silver lining to this whole pandemic period, it is the acceleration of the use of technology and having people become more comfortable with it. So I am always, you know, a cockeyed optimist. And I am hopeful that as more families and kids get comfortable with devices and the internet, we appreciate the different applications that has going forward, particularly with telehealth. And we already have reaped the benefit in so many ways with telehealth, where people now are not going to offices for doctor's visits. They can do it remotely. Now, it's a bit of a leap when someone is doing drug addiction treatment to expect them to do that. But in many cases, it might even be an easier way for them to continue their ongoing treatment. It also can be more timely when they're having a mood, when they're having a challenged moment for them to be able to just use their phones or use their devices and call the, the counselor's office and perhaps get an interview right then. You know, it, is, it, it, it takes up the, that time when they may second guess what they should do or they change their mind and they decide not to do anything at all, which would be worse. So there's so many stages to this, the, the, the discovery of it, the treatment of it, and then the recovery and where you go after. All of these things need to be dealt with. And I, I see it as evolving and hopefully can, can be assisted with the technological advances that are happening because of this. Great. So I'd like to end with some final words from each of you, starting with Michelle and then going to Mrs. Justice and ending with Elaine. Um, what is it that you want us to know about uh, the drug epidemics like opioids going forward? What do we as a nation need to know and do? Michelle? I believe that, you know, as a nation, we have to realize that this is a crisis, that it is impacting all areas of our lives. It is impacting all of our families and our communities. 
but we also have to focus in on the fact that the children are our future. Education is going to be the key to make a difference. And the more that we can, the more funds that we can put into early programs to teach prevention, not just waiting until there is an epidemic as we're speaking of, but the more we can target our resources uh, to work with children, to work with our high school students, and to combat this issue, then in the long run, I do believe that we will be successful. We have a lot of caring people uh, across our state and I know in other states, um, as we hear from Elaine, and we know that this is something that we have to conquer if we're going to move forward with all the other initiatives and the work that we need to do as a nation. Thank you. Mrs. Justice? Well, we have to know that the stigma of uh, being addicted to drugs, we have to get past that because every family uh, encounters this in some way sooner or later. We need a lot of more funding for uh, clinics, uh, for rehab places, centers like that we are doing that gets after they graduate from the programs that they have a job, they have something to get up in the mornings to look forward to, to be productive. We just need to uh, continue the education. That's the key at a younger age. In elementary school, uh, the children are very, they're just like little sponges that absorb all of this. So we need to let them start there as we all are doing and start at that young age and hopefully by teenage years that uh, they have a, uh, uh, a plan in their life that they aren't gonna succumb to this and be healthy and happy and have a great future. Right. And final thoughts, Elaine? Well, I support all of those comments that were just made. I would add this, that we're all going through some tough times now, and, and these challenges are extending way beyond the populations that before were suffering. There's a lot of people suffering. And when you suffer, you engage in desperate acts. And desperation can sometimes result in these addictive behaviors. I think it's incumbent on all of us to now act as good neighbors, as good family members, to reach out to our loved ones and to our strange neighbors and let them know they're not in this alone, that we're all going through this together, to express that empathy, to express that support, to express the commonality of what we're all going through so that they do not feel isolated and tempted to turn to self-pity and bad behavior. It's a big request and it's something we've not really been asked to do be other than the more specific kinds of work that we've been doing in the past, but this is a new era and a new age and we are all responsible for each other and our neighbors and our children and our teachers and everybody that's doing their best. Positivity is gonna be very important. Those are powerful words. We all need to be good neighbors to friends, to family, to community, to the children um, that are going through this. Thank you all so much for talking about these important topics. Um, thank you, Michelle Blatt, Kathy Justice, and Elaine Wynn. And thanks to all of you for joining us today. I hope this has been not just edifying, but inspiring to go out and be a good neighbor. Thank you all and have a great afternoon. Thank you. Thank you, Nina. Subscribe to the Smart Women Smart Power podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to good content. 
Be sure to follow us on Twitter at Smart Women and I'm at Beverly Kirk. Thanks for listening. See you next time.